All right, you can turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 3. We've been coming through the book of Acts together, and we're in Acts chapter 3 this morning, and we're going to go from Acts chapter 3, verse 1, to chapter 4, verse 4. Can everybody hear me, Rob? Can you hear me in the back there? Can everybody hear me in the back? Give me a head nod. All right, let's pray, and then we're going to dig into this together, okay? Father, thank you so much for your word, your truth, your standard, your perfect, perfect word. Father, we need your help. God, I need your help to preach your word and the ability that you supply. Your church, God, needs your help to hear, to incline our ears to hear the words of truth. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak through this time. That you would take, that you, God, would take this book that you wrote, Lord, and you would speak, speak through it, Lord, to our hearts. Tear down every barrier. Let our idols fall. Let Christ alone stand as glorious. As we look at your word this morning. Lord, we have worshipped you. In insufficient ways, and yet we worshipped you in prayer, God. We worshipped you in singing. And God, none of it was to the degree that you deserve. But God, help us now to continue to worship you through your word. We need you, Lord. Your presence. In Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts chapter 3 and into a little bit of Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. And if you um, remember the snapshot of the church that we just looked at in Acts chapter 2, really what we're going to read today is kind of an overflow or an outflowing of that snapshot, that snapshot of the church in Acts chapter 2. So just to give you an example, in Acts chapter 2 it says that great signs and wonders were being done by the apostles and great fear fell upon them all. And so we're about to actually see some of that. We're going to see some of this great signs and wonders that were being done by the apostles. We're going to be we're going to see one of those actually lived out here in an, an example of that in Acts chapter three. Or when we read that snapshot in Acts two, we see a church that's a very evangelistic church, a very uh, mission minded gospel preaching church. In fact, Acts two forty seven says the Lord was adding to the church every day, day by day. Those who are being saved. And so what we're going to see in Acts 3 is an example of that. An example of the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached and souls coming out of darkness and into the light of Christ. So we're going to get to see that as it unfolds. You could break this section from chapter 3 verse 1 to chapter 4 verse 4. You could really break it up into three categories. Uh, the miracle, we're going to see it first. And then the message is preached off of that. And then the multitudes and how they, how they respond. So let's read that first section on the miracle. So look at chapter 3. Verse 1 through 10. 
Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So I want you to try to imagine this incredible scene. Okay, this is a, this is a, an, an amazing scene here. And I want you to just try to take a moment to put yourself there and imagine what we just read. Okay, so think about it from Peter and John, the apostle Peter and John. Think about it from their perspective. Okay, so they're headed into the temple. It's about it's about 3 p.m. They're going there at the hour of prayer to pray and more than likely to evangelize. And they notice this poor lame man is sitting there at the gate. They notice this poor lame man. And, they, and the lame man begins to ask them for money. So imagine Peter and John in these moments. Peter and John, they direct their gaze at this man. And then Peter speaks up and says, look at me. Look at me. Now think about it from the perspective of, of this lame man. To him... Being laid at the gate of this temple is just business as usual. It says here that he has been lame from the womb or lame since birth. This is just business as usual. This is the way his life has been, that he has been carried daily, it says, daily at the gate called beautiful. Daily he's carried here to ask alms from the people. What must this have been like? What could it have, what could it have been like to, to grow up and, and, and maybe for his parents, his mom and daddy, to, to see him come out of the womb and realize something's wrong. Something's wrong. This, this child is lame in his legs. And imagine him growing up and he's not like the other children. He can't play like the other children. And he gets a little bit older and it, and it gets to a place where he's got to make some money. He's got to provide for himself. And so he begins to be carried over and over again to these places where people might give to this lame man. And so he's carried to the temple where people are walking in over and over. And he begins to ask for for, for alms, to ask for money during that time. Now, initially, I imagine that was humili humiliating to him to have to do that. But over time, he just grows numb to it. And this is just this is just business as usual. And suddenly this lame man sees two men. He sees he didn't, he didn't know their name yet, Peter and John, but he sees two men coming toward him. And as was his custom, he begins to ask them for money. He begins to ask them for money. And next thing you know, he finds them himself in an unusually intense stare-off with these men. It says they're gazing at him. 
He says, look at me. And the poor man, the poor lame man gives his attention. He fixes, it says, fixes his attention on these men. And then what does Peter say? Look at verse 6. Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter's got no intention of giving this man money because he's got something greater to give him. He's going to give him his legs. He's going to give him his legs. He says, in the name of Jesus, that's, that's the authority of Jesus Christ. It's not, that's not just some, uh, something you just recite, some magical potion you recite over somebody. This means in the name of Jesus, by the authority of Jesus, by the good works and glory of Jesus, rise up and walk, he says to the man. And Peter reaches out a hand to grab him to pick this man up. Imagine the scene. And so how does the once lame man respond? It says he extends a right hand. He extends a right hand to Peter who helps him up. You imagine he begins to feel a sensation he's never felt before. He begins to feel a sensation of strength, it says, coming into his feet and his ankles and into his leg. This man is being healed in his legs. It says here that he he sort of leaps up to stand to his feet. So there's this, this excited, I'm feeling this strength in my legs and he stands up. What must that have been like? To stand there for the first time. He's standing on his legs for the first time. What does he do? Is he standing there weeping? Is he screaming at the top of his lungs with his hands in the air? He's standing up right now. And then he breaks away, it says from Peter. It says in this verse, first he stands up and then he says he breaks away from Peter and he begins to walk. What were those first steps like? Were they wobbly at first? And then they got more secure? What was he thinking? Was he filled with praise for God? And we know that he was because, because then it says not only does he stand up, not only does he, does he begin to walk, but now his attention gets off the miracle itself and his attention begins to move toward the miracle worker himself. And it says he begins to leap and praise God, walking and leaping and praising God. Can you imagine this scene of this man Moving toward the temple. He's probably never been allowed to go in there before. Now all of a sudden he's walking into this temple on these legs for the first time. And he's leaping and he's worshiping the God that just healed him. This is an amazing scene. And so how do the multitudes respond? You got multitudes that are in the temple and outside of the temple all over this place in this busy city. And so how did the multitudes respond? It says in verse 9 and 10 that they recognized him. They saw him and they recognized him and said, this is that man that's always crippled there at the, at the gate asking for alms. That's that man that was supposed to be lame in his legs. They recognized him, it says. And then it says in verse 10, and they were filled with wonder and amazement. If you skip ahead to verse 11, it says, they were utterly, utterly astounded. And then the people began to run in. This commotion's going down. And the people begin to run in to see what's happening. They're utterly astounded. This man is walking and leaping and praising God. What has just happened? I think that scene should cause us to glorify our Savior. Let's talk about that. So why did this miracle 
happened? What was the purpose of this miracle? And I'll give you three, three quick purposes of this miracle. Number one, ultimately, like all things, this miracle was about the glory of Jesus Christ. So we need to worship him for what we just read and the, the record of what he did on this day. We need to worship him. This is for the glory of Christ. He's the miracle worker. Look at him. You see that very clearly when Peter begins to um, when he begins to explain what's going on. He looks at the people and he says, why are you looking at us? Why are you staring at us? We're going to read that in a minute. Why are you staring at us as if by our own power, our own godliness that we made this man? Well, he says the God of Abraham glorified Jesus. This is about the glory of Jesus. The reason we need to be aware of any miracles that tend to glorify men and don't have their ultimate glorification in Jesus Christ himself. It's about the glory of Christ. Number two, this miracle is about the spread of the gospel. If you notice it, and we're going to read it in just a moment, this miracle goes down, the crowd gathers and what happens next? Peter stands up and he preaches the gospel to win souls. This miracle is about the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the advancement of the kingdom of God, which fits in the whole flow of the book of Acts. Remember Acts chapter one, verse eight gives us the theme, right? The spirit of God is going to come upon you when the spirit of God does that. You're going to receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in that context, here's him doing a miracle right here for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is about glorifying his name and advancing his gospel, not just doing Jesus firework shows everywhere. You understand that? This is about the advancement of the gospel of Jesus, about the glory of Jesus Christ. Number three, reason this miracle happened, the purpose of this miracle is for the, af the affirmation of these apostles. These apostles are in a very unique role in a very unique time. And these miracles that we're reading here, and, and, and this one in particular, is meant to highlight them. It's meant to affirm them, to say these are these apostles in this unique role in this unique time in redemptive history. Let me explain some of that out very quickly. I want you to think about the uniqueness of these apostles. Peter, John, and so on. Let me just talk about the uniqueness of these apostles. Acts chapter 1 said to be one of these apostles, you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus. You had to be an eyewitness to a post-resurrected Christ walking on earth. If nobody in this room fits that description. Nobody in this generation fits that description. But that's what Acts 1 says you had to be to be an apostle. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that Jesus showed himself to all the apostles. In that resurrected state, he showed himself. And then Paul says, last of all, he revealed himself to me. Paul is the last of the apostles. This is a unique role, a unique role in history. Revelation 21 speaks about the names of the apostles being carved into the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem that's going to descend out of heaven. That's a unique role. They, these men wrote scripture. That's the reason the early church, church says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They wrote Scripture. This is unique. Ephesians 2.20 says they were the foundation. The, 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 church, the foundation of the church laid on the apostles and the, and the prophets. They were a foundation, these apostles, for the church of Jesus Christ. So they had a very unique role. Now the miracles were meant to affirm them in that role. Think about these verses. 
2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul says, Were not the signs of an apostle performed among you? He's affirming his own apostleship. He says, Were not the signs of an apostle done among you? It's affirming his apostleship. You can see that in other verses. In Acts, think about this, Acts 2, 43. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through who? Through the apostles. Many wonders and signs being done through the apostles. Look at chapter 4, verse 33. Look at this emphasis. And with great power, who? With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So the apostles, great power is obviously the signs and wonders accompanying the message. With great power, with these signs and wonders through who? Through the Apostles, look at chapter 5, verse 12. Now many signs, <clears throat> now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by who? By the hands of the apostles. Now I want you to notice it said regularly. So these miraculous things, this is not a, a, just a random events every now and then happen. Regularly, God was affirming, affirming, affirming through signs and wonders that these apostles are these are in this unique role as the foundation of the church. Going to write scripture. They're going to be these these men. You even see if you keep reading here where men would come out into the streets and they would lay their sick just in such a way so that Peter's shadow might pass them. This is a unique, a unique apostolic power. Uh, let me just read you a couple more verses. Hebrews chapter 2 speaks about this. Chapter 2 verse 1. Excuse me. Verse 3 says, How should we escape? How should we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Speaking about our gospel, our gospel message is great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord. That's Jesus. It was declared by Jesus. And then by who? And it was attested to us by those who heard speaking about those apostles while God, listen to the reason for the signs and wonders, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. You can read this also in Mark 16, 20, where it says these signs and wonders were accompanying the apostles as they preached the message of Jesus. He was affirming them. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm obviously not saying that God doesn't do the miraculous or that we shouldn't pray to God for the miraculous. But we better put some distance between us and these apostles or we're moving into a dangerous, dangerous place. God was using these miracles to affirm these apostles for the glory of Jesus and for the advancement of the gospel and for the establishment of the church. So in summary, we should think about this miracle and man, we, we ought to glorify Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful, important miracle in Acts chapter 3, verse 1 through 10. And it's meant to draw our attention to Christ and this glorious message and the advancement of this gospel. Okay, so that's that's the way we need to think about it. Now, let's go to the message. The message that he preaches is chapter 3, verse 11 through 26. Now, just like in Acts chapter 2, Peter's going to take this opportunity this opportunity of, of something miraculous has just happened. Multitudes gathered and he preached the gospel in Acts 2. Same thing's going to happen here. He's going to preach the gospel. He's going to preach the gospel as these crowds gather around because of this miracle. So let's read 
Start in verse 11 through 26 together. Listen to what Peter preached. Now, while he clung to Peter and John, that's the once lame man. All the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power of piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong. whom you see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restore for restoring of all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now, we just got the details, maybe not all of them, but we got the details of what Peter preached right here. Why does he do that? Why in Acts 2, why didn't it just say, and Peter preached the gospel, moving on? Why right here did it not just say, and Peter preached the gospel, moving on? Why do we get the details in Acts 2 of Peter said this, and the details in Acts 3, Peter said this, which by the way, they're extremely similar. And then we get details in Acts 13, Paul said this, and details in Acts 17, he preached this. Why do we get those details? Because this gospel message is so important. The gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to know what they preach. It is so, so important. We need to understand that message. This is the message that carried into heaven 3,000 souls on its shoulders in Acts 2. This is a message that's about to carry thousands of more souls into the kingdom of God. This is an important message. We need to know it. We need to understand it. We need to grasp it. And so he gives us details here of what he said. Now there's three. I believe you could take what Peter preached and I believe you can break it up into three major bullet points. Okay. Number one, he preached Jesus. Number two, he preached sin. So he preached Jesus and who Jesus is and what he did. And number two, he preached against sin as in 
I mean, he, he severely confronts sin in these people. And number three, he preaches that they must respond. The response, the response of the gospel. So I want you to think about this for a minute. Before we move in, before we move into the content of this message, think about this for a minute. You've got this miracle here. And following this miraculous event that's meant to establish the apostles, advance the gospel, we've got this glorious message of the gospel that's about Jesus, a confrontation of sin, and a call to respond. And here's something I want to say to you as we think about that. We need to be, be very aware. We need to beware about these so-called miraculous events and miraculous things that happen that do not follow up with a glorious gospel, especially a gospel about a glorious Christ and a confrontation of sin. I cannot tell you how many times I've seen YouTube videos of what I think are, for the most part, charlatans who go and do these little miraculous, so-called miraculous things and healings. And it's, hey, I healed you. Look at Jesus. Come to Jesus now. Whereas Peter said he healed them, it's undeniable. There's nothing that's, that seems vague about it. Undeniable healing. And then what's the next thing he does? He says, Jesus, whom you crucified, he calls out their sin, shows them the glory of Christ and calls them to repent. We need to beware of these so-called miracles that don't follow up with this kind of gospel that confronts sin and preaches the glorious Christ and calls people to respond. Now listen again, I, I, I want us to take these three bullet points and I just want to preach what Peter preached as best I can. I want to preach what Peter preached as best I can. Now, now consider that there's you know, different needs all across this room. And some of you, some of you may need to hear this gospel for the raising of your cold affections. So listen, listen to the gospel and worship Jesus Christ. Some of you, may need to hear this gospel so that you can be equipped to go preach the exact same thing. Listen and learn and go repeat it somewhere. And some of you might be like Peter's audience. Maybe you need to hear this gospel because you're lost and you're headed on a path to hell right now and you need to be saved. Listen to the gospel and respond as some of these people responded. So number one, that first category, number one, Peter preached Jesus. Peter preached Jesus. And, and, and Peter preached Jesus glorified, right? Glorified. The glorification of Jesus Christ, which, which involves His resurrection and His ascension. If you, just, if you just took the time to read slowly through it, you see Jesus whom the Father glorified. You see Jesus who killed the author of life, but God raised Him from the dead and we are witnesses. You'll see Jesus who's going to come back again, but until the time that He restores all things, He's waiting in heaven until He returns. It's the glorified Jesus. That's the one that they preach. Reigning as a king right now. As we speak, He's reigning on His throne. That's the Jesus they preach. Not just gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but Jesus ascended, glorious King of all. To whom every knee must bow and every tongue must confess. Now, I want you to think about this. Jesus prayed something like this in John 17, 5. He said, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus, the Son of God, had a glory 
with God the Father before the world even existed. He lays aside his glory, takes on flesh, and after he dies for sinners, he rises from the grave, ascends on high as king of glory, the glorified one. So he went back to his glory only now. Listen, he's a man. He had this glory with the Father before time began. Now he is glorified. Now, only now, he's fully God and he's fully man. A man, Christ Jesus, with this sort of glory, a glorious thought, a beautiful thought. I think we need to beware of seeing or preaching or understanding Jesus as, as, as if he's still meek and mild and hanging on his cross somewhere. He's not. He's risen. He's the Revelation 1 Christ. John saw him in Revelation 1 and he almost died when he saw this man. Eyes like a flame of fire. The, his face shining like the sun is blinding. His voice comes out and it sounds like many waters rumbling. This is the Christ that Peter preaches to these people. And this is the Christ that is alive right now. He knows everything that we see, everything that we think, everything we hear. He knows how we respond to Him. Peter also preaches Jesus as the Holy and the righteous one. Look at verse 14. But you deny the holy and the righteous one. He's called the holy and the righteous one. And in the context, holy and righteous one means sinless and pure one or the perfect one, the lamb that has no blemish, the one that, that is perfect and clean and sinless and holy. That's who Peter proclaims him to be. Now, that's not just that he is holy and righteous and pure and clean and perfect and sinless just in his divine nature, but a human, a human. He is proclaiming a human as the holy and righteous one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God except him. All are darkness except for he is light. He alone is light. You think about uh, Pontius Pilate. He knew this. Pontius Pilate said this. I find no guilt in this man. The Roman centurion at the, at the crucifixion. He knew it. He said, certainly this man was innocent. Jesus' family knew it. How do you convince your mother and your brothers to bow down and worship you as the holy and righteous one? Unless you are perfect and clean and sinless and is proven. He's the holy and righteous one. Hebrews Hebrews 4.15 speaks about our high priest who was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He's without sin. The thief on the cross next to him knew it. He said, this man has done nothing wrong. And it's one thing to consider Jesus, the Son of God, and His divinity as the divine God who is perfect and sinless. But think about it. He's a man, fully man, took on flesh. And imagine a human, sinless, spotless, clean. And this qualifies Jesus to be our sacrifice for sins, our substitute to grant us his righteousness. It qualifies him to do that. Second Corinthians 521 says God made him who knew no sin. He's the sinless one who knew no sin to become sin for us. Can you imagine the sinless and righteous one 
everybody else as unrighteous and wicked and the sin of the world laid on the only holy and righteous man. The wrath of God falls on him instead so that we might become the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's righteous. We're not. He takes our unrighteousness and he grants us his righteousness. He's a holy and righteous one. Peter also preaches him as the author of life. Look at verse 15. And you killed the author of life. Now I want you to think about that. Peter had eaten breakfast with this man. He went fishing and Jesus was there. And he just said, creator and sustainer of life. That's who he is. He's the author of life. All living creatures are dependent on the source of life. Who is Jesus Christ? All living creatures dependent on Him. I want you to apply Job 34, verse 14 to Jesus. Listen to Job 34, verse 14. The man Christ Jesus. If He should set His heart and gather to Himself His Spirit and His breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to the dust. That if Jesus, the author, the source of all life, if, if He decided I will remove now my spirit and my breath, everybody goes back to dust in a moment. He's the author. He's the author of life. And He's the only one. Everybody, every other living creature is dependent on another source for their life. But there is one that has life in Himself and there is only one. And that's Jesus Christ the Lord. Peter also preaches him as the suffering Christ. Look at verse 17 and 18. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. Now, it means ignorant, not as in they lose responsibility for their sin, but as in they didn't know, they didn't believe that he was the Messiah. You acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So Peter preaches him as the suffering Christ. Now, to be known as the Christ, if you know your Old Testament and you read through and you're tracing out everything that it says about this, this Messiah, about this Christ, he's going to be a king and he's going to be a king that reigns on the throne forever and ever and ever and all his enemies will be put under his feet. The Christ is a king, but this just said a suffering king. And praise God, because if Jesus only came as king, then every single one of us would go to hell forever. But rather, he comes as not just before he goes to his throne, he goes to the cross. Before he gets his crown, he goes to the cross and he suffers. So what's it talking about? All the Peter just said all the prophets speak about this suffering Christ. I want you to think about, for example, the prophet Isaiah. When he speaks about that Christ is coming, that King is coming, he says he will be wounded. He is wounded for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. Meaning we have transgressions, we have iniquities, but another one was crushed in our place. All we like sheep, the prophet Isaiah, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've gone everyone to his own way. That's who we are. But the Lord has laid on him that coming Christ. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He took our sin onto himself. He took the wrath of God onto himself so we could be set free from it. And Peter preaches this suffering Christ. 
The glorified one is the one who suffered first and died so that we could be saved. Peter also preaches Jesus as the prophet like Moses. The prophet like Moses. Look at verse 22. 22 and 23. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Now to understand this, let's go back to Deuteronomy 18. Peter's quoting from Deuteronomy 18 about this one who's coming. It's going to be a prophet like Moses. You got a lot of little P prophets. This is the big P prophet like Moses. Deuteronomy 18, just to grab a little context, look at verse 13. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God, he says to the people of Israel. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. So in the context of human beings, want to, we want to hear a message from the other world. We want otherworldly messages from God. We want to hear from something else that gets outside of this world. And so here's these people. And what do the nations do? They go after sorcerers and mediums and they're trying to hear a voice from another world. And then, and then God says, but you can't do that. Instead, you know what I'm going to do? You know what I'm going to do? Verse 15 says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. You want a message from another world? Listen to the prophet that's coming. He's like Moses. You remember Moses, the, the, the people of God couldn't bear the presence of God. And so Moses is the one that goes up on that mountain, gets a message from God, comes back down and delivers it to the people. He says it's like that. Jesus is like that. He's like one with a message from another world. You want to know God? You want to know his will? Listen to Jesus. Hebrews chapter one, verse one and two. It says that in various times and in various ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by the big P prophet, his son. He's spoken by his son. You can hear from God. This is Christ. He's the prophet like Moses. And lastly, I'll mention Peter preaches Jesus as the seed of Abraham. Look at verse 25 and 26. The seed of Abraham. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abraham said that in your offspring shall all the, excuse me, that was said to Abraham. In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What does that mean? Verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, that's the offspring, sent him to you first to bless you. He's going to bless all nations. He sent Jesus to fulfill this. So here's the idea. You know that promise? That promise in the book of Genesis that literally holds Genesis together, that shows you the meaning of the whole book? Remember that promise? 
So you think about Genesis, you start reading through Genesis and you hear about this one that's going to come, that's going to crush Satan's head. And then you get to Genesis 12 and he says it to Abraham, Abraham, in your seed, there's one coming through your offspring in your seed. All nations shall be blessed. The one that's going to crush Satan's head is going to bless all nations. He says it again to him in Genesis 22, 18. Abraham, in your seed, all nations will be blessed. He says it again to Isaac. He says it again to Jacob. It's the promise that holds the whole book together. The first book of the Bible. And guess where it's fulfilled? It's fulfilled, according to Peter, in Jesus Christ. He's the one that's come to bless all nations by turning them away from their wickedness. So Peter, I hope you see it. Peter preaches Jesus. Second category of Peter's preaching here. Peter confronts sin. He confronts sin. Now I want to show you that the, 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 the apostles preached the gospel that confronted sin. I want you to be assured of that so that if I or anybody else preaches a gospel that confronts sin, you won't be mad at them. Okay? They preached a gospel that confronted sin. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. Acts 3, verse 13 through 15. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified His servant Jesus. Listen to Him confront their sin here. Whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. You denied Jesus, He says. He puts a finger on Him here. When He had decided to release Him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the altar of life. You denied Jesus. You killed Jesus. Do you see how ridiculous this is? That you asked for a murderer. You asked for him to be delivered to you, Barabbas, and you killed the altar of life. So you, you rescued the one that takes lives and you killed the one that gives life. Do you see how ridiculous your sin is? And so he's confronting He's confronting their sin here. And, and this, isn't, this isn't just a unique, uh, uh, a unique moment in the book of Acts. We see this over and over again. In Acts chapter 2, verse 20, 23, they say, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. We're going to see it again in Acts chapter 4. They're literally, Peter's in jail, and all the rulers and authorities are saying, you know, what gives you the, the, the authority to do what you're doing? And, and Peter, in almost awkward ways, says, you know, Jesus, whom you crucified. He says it again in Acts chapter five. They complain about the apostles and say, you're trying to put this man's blood on our hands. You're trying to put this man's blood on our hands. So he confronts their sins. And here's what I want us to take away from that, that the horrific things that are said in the confrontation of sin in this gospel preaching could be said about every single one of us. Every single one of us. Do you know that that the Bible speaks about all of us as words like this? Wretches. Wretches that have sinned against God. Rebels who have rebelled against God. That even your best works are like filthy rags. We are all like unclean things and all our, all our righteous deeds, our best deeds are like filthy rags in His sight. The Bible speaks about us in this sort of way. And listen, if that sounds too harsh to you, it's because you're deceived. You don't see the truth about your sin. And you may be hellbound. This is the way the Scripture describes us. None have done good. No, not one. 
Their throat's an empty tomb. Venom is on their tongue. Speaks like this about every single one of us. Now, how do you know? You think about the Gospels being preached. He preaches Christ. He preaches a confrontation of sin. How do you know when you really see, you really grasp the sinfulness of your sin? How do you know? How do you know that? I'll tell you one way you, that you shouldn't think about that. In this culture, Romans 3.23 gets so twisted up, right? We know all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. All of sin. It's almost like we find this sadistic uh, comfort that we get from the fact that everybody's a sinner. That's not what that verse is meant to do. All of sin, you know, everybody's a sinner. That's not the way it works. Have you felt the, the, the reality of the sinfulness of your sin? How do you know if you have? What about brokenness over your sin and hatred over sin? Psalm 34, verse 18, it says that the Lord draws near to the brokenhearted. He saves such as has a crushed spirit. Have you been broken over your sin? Have you been moved to hate the sin that condemns you to hell? Have you seen the sinfulness of your sin? What about the conviction of the Holy Spirit? The Spirit of God will come to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Have you experienced the conviction of the sin? Do you see the reality of your sin? Does it, does it grab you? You know that somebody has when they give up. They give up trying to make their own way to be right with God. And they say, my only hope is in Jesus Christ who laid down His life for me. My only hope is in the glorified One, the suffering servant who laid down His life and who's risen and alive right now. He's my only hope. And at that point, maybe, maybe you've realized the sinfulness of your sin. If, if, if someone doesn't, so you, you think about in Peter's gospel preaching, he confronts sin. Because if somebody doesn't see the sinfulness of their sin, it's an express ticket to hell. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you feel righteous in and of yourself, He didn't come for you. He comes for those who are broken and know their sin. Last category here in Peter's preaching. So he preaches Jesus. He preaches a confrontation of sin. And he also calls them to respond. Number three, he calls them to, to respond. And I want you to think about that. So Peter, when he's preaching the gospel, he's not just, he's not just an information dump. He's not just dumping information out there for your intellectual consideration. He is calling them to respond to this. Respond to the gospel. That's part of the gospel is that you must respond to it or you have no part of in it. So what's the response to the gospel that one must have to be saved? What's the response? Look at verse 19. Acts 3.19. Repent therefore and turn back. Repent therefore. This is the call to respond. He says, therefore Repent. And be converted. Repent and turn around. Are you headed down a broad path that's leading to destruction and hell forever? Turn off the path and move toward the narrow path of life. Repent of your sin. What's keeping you from Christ? Turn away from it and put your hope in Jesus. Come to Him. Jesus said it like this. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Him. The call to respond is to repent. And if you do, Keep reading verse 19. What will happen? That your sins may be 
blotted out. Can you imagine that? All your sins on a record somewhere, blotted out, erased. The sin's gone. Because you turn to Christ. Your only hope's in Him. You repented and put your hope in Christ. It says that your sins might be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So not only your messed up record that has sin on, not only does it erase the record, but your broken relationship with God, He mends it and there's reconciliation and you get times of refreshing from His presence. It's very similar to Acts 2.38 where the call to respond was repent for the forgiveness of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here we have sins blotted out, forgiveness of sins. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit at times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. What beautiful gifts. And then, and then there's even more. It continues on in verse 20. And that He may send the Christ appointed for you. Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things. So the idea here seems to be the return of Christ. So, so repent for the forgiveness of your sins, that your sins might be blotted out. Repent so that you get times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. You get God and repent so that when he sends Jesus, the appointed Messiah, when he returns, that's good news for you. The Gospels say that when Christ returns, many are going to mourn. But if you repent now, you don't mourn when He returns. You give glory to God. You are rejoicing that your Savior, your Savior has returned. But what if you don't? Verse 23, if you don't repent, if you don't respond. Verse 23, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. If you do not respond, Peter says in his preaching, you'll be destroyed. This is eternal destruction in the lake of fire. Torment day and night, forever and ever. Revelation 20 verse 10. This is, this is the eternal wrath of God poured out. If you don't respond, then there's no hope for you. So we've seen the miracle and the message that Peter preached. Now let's go to chapter 4, verse 1 and look at the multitudes. In other words, how the multitude is going to respond to this. Look at verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Think about this response of the multitude. Some people hated him and threw him in jail. But some people were saved and they were delivered from hell. Just like we see in Acts chapter 2. Think about Acts 2. The gospel is preached and it says many people began to mock and yet 3,000 souls were saved. So the gospel preachers were mocked that day and yet souls got saved. And in this day, the gospel preachers what? They got thrown in jail. They were hated. People were greatly annoyed. But souls got saved. 
I want you to think about that for just a moment. This, this polarization from gospel preaching is to be expected. This polarizing response from the multitudes is what we should respect. Some will, we should expect some will hate you and some souls will be saved. Think about Paul's ministry. Everywhere he goes, making disciples, preaching the gospel, making disciples, playing churches. Souls are getting saved everywhere. And yet he's being stoned and dragged out of the city. They're throwing rocks at him. They're trying to kill him. They thought they did. This polarizing response of the gospel. 2 Corinthians uh, 2, verse 14 through 16, it speaks about our, uh, our pursuit of the spread of the gospel of Jesus. It, it compares it to like, we smell like the aroma of Christ. It's like that. It's like we are the aroma of Jesus. And it says this, to some, the smell of death leading to death, and to some, the smell of life leading to life. It's polarizing. You're a preacher of this gospel? To some, you smell like death. And to some, you'll smell like life. Now, I believe Acts 3, verse 1, through Acts 4, verse 4, this section that we're in, I believe it's an encouragement to us. I believe that, that, that it's a challenge to us to be an evangelistic people. We're reading about Acts 2, this, this, this snapshot of the local church and the Lord's adding to the church day by day. Those who are being saved and flowing out of that, we get the gospel preached and soul saved. And we should be encouraged and challenged to be a gospel preaching, evangelistic church, to be evangelistic people. But you know what stops so many people from being that? They're not willing to be a fork in the road. They're not willing for some to hate them so that some may be saved. So they soften the gospel just a little bit so nobody will hate them. Or they just remain silent so nobody will be greatly annoyed. And it stops people from being a fork in the road. But if you're a gospel preacher, if we're an evangelistic church, an evangelistic people, we will be a fork in the road. Some will go one way and some will go the other. One will look like hatred and one will look like salvation. Now I want to encourage us to take up this example and be that evangelistic people. And this is not a rebuke to anybody. It's not a rebuke to you. And in fact, for the most part, as I think about you guys and my brothers and sisters, all I'm saying is y'all, let's be stirred up to do more of what so many of you are already doing. This mindset to preach His gospel, to take it into the world, to take it, the light of the gospel, in to darkness. So I want you to think, I want us to be encouraged about this as a church. So you, you everybody here knows that, that evangelism, gospel preaching, this sort of thing that Peter's doing, not exactly always that, but that sort of thing of getting that message out. Y'all know that, that that is for every single believer, right? It's for all Christians. It's not just for the apostles. I mean, the apostles said that in our passage. They said, why do you stare at us? As if our own power or piety has made this happen. Why are you looking at us, the apostles say? This gospel preaching, this make disciples the command for every disciple of Jesus. Now I want to encourage you towards this evangelistic life two ways. In closing, I want to encourage you toward this in two ways. Number one, by confirming that the normal evangelistic Christian life will greatly annoy people. Now some of you are like, well, that doesn't sound encouraging. How is that encouraging? Because here's my thought. 
that if you'll just go ahead and decide it from the front end, this is going to annoy some people. This is going to make some people mad. So people are going to hate me. If you just go ahead and decide it now, maybe it will encourage you not to shrink from it when it comes. So I want to encourage us to be an evangelistic people by encouraging us that some people will most definitely be greatly annoyed. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. It says, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Great. They were greatly annoyed. This is the same word that's used when you remember Paul in Acts 16. He's in Philippi and he's preaching the gospel and a demon possessed girl is following him. And everywhere they go, the demon possessed girl is saying, these are servants of God most high. These are servants of God most high. These are servants of God most high. And it says Paul gets annoyed. And he rebukes the demon and it goes out of her. And it's the same thing. Some people will be annoyed at you, greatly annoyed, like you are demon possessed. Greatly annoyed. They were arrested. They, they, think of it, they were arrested, it seems like, for disturbing the peace. Here they are, disturbing the peace in Jerusalem. I want to show you a few verses in my reading of Acts that I came across. Acts 16. Verse 20, listen, listen to this. In Acts, Acts 4, we see them. People are greatly annoyed and arrested for disturbing the peace. And look at Acts 16, verse 20. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, that's the Christians there preaching the gospel in Philippi. They said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. Christians go to Philippi and they disturb the peace. Look at Acts 17, verse 8. And the people in the city, in the city authorities, were greatly disturbed when they heard these things. Christians go to Thessalonica and they disturb the peace. Go to Acts 19, verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Christians go to Ephesus and they disturb the peace. And it's no little, not a little one. It's a big disturbance. And if you are filled with the Spirit, I want to preach the gospel of Jesus, live an evangelistic life, you will be a disturber of the peace. Go ahead and settle it in your heart now. Galatians 1.10 says that if I seek to please men, I'm no longer a bondservant of Christ. Do you know what keeps people from following this gospel preaching example of Peter? They want to please men. And Scripture says, if your aim is to please men, you can't be a, you can't be a servant of Christ. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 6, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. That's what they did to the false prophets, Remember? Woe to you when all men speak well of you. So settle it beforehand. Be an evangelistic people. Second thing I want to say to encourage us in this is I want to encourage us to expect fruit that we preach the gospel of Jesus and, and, and expect fruit. Expect souls to be saved. This faith-filled in God expectation that God would do a mighty work, that He'll use His Word by the power of the Spirit. I want to encourage you in your evangelistic efforts everywhere you are, whether you're going to a campus to preach the gospel, whether you're just spending time with family, sharing the gospel with 
with, the, with those that you love. Either way, expecting fruit. I want, the, I want you to think about how encouraging is Acts chapter 4, verse 4. Let, let me just read it again. Acts 4, 4, listen. But many of those who had heard the word, so, so, so the apostles are headed off to jail. Okay, they're going to jail. And what's the Holy Spirit doing? He, he's still at work. And many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000, 3,000 souls saved in Acts 2. People being saved. Now the number's up to 5,000 men. That's encouraging that God is, is by His Spirit putting His hand on this gospel and souls are being delivered out of darkness and brought into light. Acts 2, 3,000 souls saved. Acts 2, 47 says, and the Lord was adding to the church daily those who were being saved. I want to encourage you to expect souls to be saved. Acts 5, 14, listen. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. Be encouraged. Acts 6, verse 7. And the Word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Acts 13, verse 49. Be encouraged here. Listen to it. And the Word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Acts 19, verse 20. It's unstoppable. Acts 19, verse 20. So the Word of the Lord continue to increase and prevail mightily. What are your expectations? What's your expectations for this church? We want to be a, an evangelistic church, right? We want to read this Acts 3 and Acts 4 and see that it just fits right in the stream of the gospel moving forward. And we want to see the gospel go out of this church to unreached nations, to jobs, to schools, to family, everywhere for the glory of His name. Are you asking God to save souls? And what are you expecting to happen? I want to encourage you to have an expectation that God will do a work. It's the same same Holy Spirit that dwelled in them dwells in us, right? Amen? Same Word of God. Same living, powerful Word of God that they preach, we hold, right? Same glorious Gospel that delivers people from hell is the Gospel that we preach. Amen? Let me close with a quick story. I don't know if I... I'd be able to if I'd have time. This story always encourages me very quickly towards evangelism, towards preaching the gospel, towards following in the footsteps of what we're reading here. It comes out of George Whitfield's biography, but it's actually about Charles Wesley. And Charles Wesley, this man had a ministry to uh, where he would go to the prisons, okay? This is in the 1700s, so imagine the prison in the 1700s. He would go to these prisons and he would preach the gospel to these men, especially these men that were just on the verge of being executed. They were going to be killed, executed for their crimes. And he's going and he's preaching the gospel to these souls. Listen to his words here. I visited one of them in his cell, sick of fever. A poor man that had robbed his master. I told him of one who came down from heaven to save lost sinners. And him in particular. I described the sufferings of the Son of God. His sorrows, agony, and death. He listened with all the signs of eager astonishment. And tears trickled down his cheeks while he cried. What? 
Was this for me? Did God suffer all this for so poor a creature as me? And the, the person writing about this goes on. Now, upon visiting the prison three days later, Charles said this, I rejoiced with my, with my poor and happy friend who now believes the Son of God loved him and gave himself for him. Now they speak about them going into these, these prisons and these men are about to be executed. They're about to be, about to be executed. And literally the night before the executions, they would go and they would allow themselves to be locked into their prisons to preach the gospel to these men. Can you imagine the danger of that? To be locked in their prison cells to preach the gospel to these men. As the day of execution approached, Charles increased his efforts. At night, he, al he allowed himself to be locked in with the condemned men. They wrestled in mighty prayer and saw fear and despair give way to peace and joy on one countenance after another. I want you to think about the time's coming for the execution. And these men are going to be hung. So they, they, they pull up this cart, so to speak, up next to the gallows. And you imagine at this time, all these wicked people gathering around in multitudes to jeer at the ones that are about to be executed. That's the scene that he's entering into here. On the morning of the hanging, a boisterous crowd intent on making sport of the victims. They gathered as usual at Tyburn. As the death cart drew onto the field, Charles Wesley and a few friends were there to meet it. The friend that he had spied him coming out of the coach. And, so, and Charles said, he saluted me with his looks. As often as his eyes, this is a man being executed, as often as his eyes met mine, he smiled with the most composed, delightful countenance I ever saw. Charles made his way through the crowd and climbed onto the cart. So now this evangelistic, evangelistic man is on the death cart. But when the official chaplain tried to do the same, the prisoners begged he might not come and the mob kept him down. Now there in the death cart, Disdainful, he hated the jeers of the crowd. Charles again, he began to speak words of scriptural comfort to these poor victims. And he and his companions began to sing. Now you imagine these men about to be executed and Charles and his friends and all the godless crowds around and these Christians begin to sing. Behold the Savior of mankind nailed to the shameful tree. How vast the love that him inclined to bleed and die for thee. Tis done. The precious ransom's paid. Receive my soul, he cries. See where he bows his sacred head. He bows his head and dies. So a rope from an overhead scaffold was placed around the neck of each prisoner. Charles continues his ministration, this evangelistic man. He continues his ministration. He's praying for them, giving encouragement and kissing whom he could. He's kissing these men. And as the final moment approached for them to be executed, he broke into song. To the dear fountain of thy blood, incarnate God, I fly. Here let me wash my spotted soul from crimes of deepest dye. A guilty, weak, and helpless worm, into thy hands I fall. Be thou my life, my righteousness, my Jesus, and my all. And the cart drew off, says Charles, and not one struggled for life. We left them there, going to meet their Lord, ready for the bridegroom. And then Charles Wesley turns to the godless crowds. And I spoke a few suitable words to the crowds. He preached the gospel to them. 
and return full of peace and confidence in our friend's happiness and listen to the way he speaks. And this encourages my soul about living this evangelistic life we're talking about. Listen to, listen to the last piece of this. That hour, says Charles Wesley, writer of Thousand Hymns, that hour under the gallows was the most blessed hour of my life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord. Thank you for this glorious miracle, God, and the ways that you moved and healed that man. Thank you for this glorious gospel that was preached this day, God, and for letting us have a record of it. Thank you for the souls that you saved that day and the, and the willingness that you put in the heart of those men to be hated, to be imprisoned, to be beaten, to be despised and rejected like you were, Jesus. And God, I pray that you would encourage our souls to be like them. Fill our heart with your gospel, God. Fill up our mouths with a bold proclamation of your truth. Thank you, God, for this example of Charles Wesley taking your gospel to the most neediest of people. God, I pray that you would stir our souls to preach this gospel. And God, we want to expect that your word would grow mightily and prevail, that your word would be spread throughout the whole region, that you would reach every nation, tribe, and tongue through a weak group of individuals like us. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen.